0: Father, now we want to ask you, again, what we've asked you um, many times before. And we pray that your word would now go forth not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, so that we would be more fully convinced. That your word is true. Every word of yours will prove true. God, I pray that you would work in us what's pleasing to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we left off at the end of chapter 3 last week. We'll pick up there again now. Uh, Our passage today says some rather shocking things, things that make us say, well, is that really in the Bible? The end of Ecclesiastes 3 says, man is no better off than cattle, than the beast. At the beginning of Ecclesiastes 4 says, the dead are better off than the living, and better still the one who hasn't lived at all. Those are hard sayings. What would make a wise old king say things like that? Well, Solomon, writing under the Spirit's inspiration, says these hard and shocking things in response to seeing some hard and shocking things. Look at what he saw that made him say what he did. Chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw... Under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So, so he saw evil and corruption in the very people and places on earth that were supposed to uphold justice and promote righteousness. Now look at what else he saw under the sun. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So put the verses together. He saw under the sun no ultimate justice and no ultimate comfort. In this fallen world, people are terribly wronged and brutally oppressed, but they often cannot gain rights or relief. Now, we saw last week Solomon is not hopeless about these dark realities because he knows ultimately God will see to it that justice is served. God will set everything right in the end, and that's the hope that Solomon held in his heart when he saw injustice and oppression prevailing look at verse 17 of chapter 3 now i said in my heart god will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work you need to say that in your heart and say it often god will judge And Solomon ends this book by saying it again. The very last verse, 12, 14, says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So so if you will live with wisdom and godly integrity and courage and joy, you must live waiting for that and saying in your heart, that it's coming, but that brings us to the question: Why do we have to keep waiting for it? Why would God keep delaying final justice? And, and Solomon wrestles with that in the next part of the book. Uh, verse seventeen said, "God has appointed a certain time for this work, a final judgment." But clearly, the time's not now, because injustice and evil it continues. Under the sun, even as I speak. And why? What what good purpose does God have for this? Well, many. And we can't know all of them. Verse 14 told us God's work from beginning to end is beyond our finding out. But this passage does tell us one purpose God has for prolonging his patience and waiting on final judgment. He, He allows oppression and unrighteousness to continue under the sun. So that we can see it. So fallen mankind can see what they have become in turning away from God. And perhaps if we see it, God might use that ugly sight to change our hearts. To make us want to repent of our evil and indifference. So we could begin to relate relate rightly to Him and to others. And to share his joy. And, and those thoughts grow out of the next verse, verse 18. After Solomon sees the failure of justice on earth, and then he says God will judge later at the proper time, then he says, verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see, see what? that they themselves are but beasts. How so? The following verses show, fallen men have become like beasts in their mortality and in their brutality. And if God's grace works in you, then when you see the the beast-like mortality of man and the inhuman brutality of man... That can actually produce something beautiful in your heart. A deep humility before God and a godly sympathy for others. So today, see how humanity has become like beasts and let God purify your heart by the sight of it. Here's our first main point for today. See man's mortality and learn humility. Right after Solomon said God wants man to see they're like beasts, he explains this in terms of man's mortality. Look at 19. 4. here's what I mean. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. No advantage? Well, at least in this respect, that that the lives of men are vanity, meaning our lives are like a vapor, like a disappearing mist. Our, Our lives are brief and passing away quickly, like the beast. It's hard to look at this truth straight in the face. Even... To see a dead animal and think one day the same will happen to me. Not long after we are born, God takes the breath of life from us. Just as he takes it away from the beast of the field. Not long after he first gives it to them. And then our bodies return to the dust. Just like the animals. See that in verse 20. All man and beast go to one place. Namely, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Now Solomon knows that man is not just another animal. Uh, He knows man's created in God's image and so exalted above the beasts. It It was Solomon's own daddy who wrote Psalm 8, celebrating that Solomon grew up singing, these verses from Psalm 8. You, Lord, have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned man with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet sheep and oxen, and also all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. In so, Solomon, knows this he, he affirms it even that there's a special way God made mankind in ecclesiastes 3 in verse 11 he said god put eternity into our hearts so god made man for eternal things he made us to enjoy fellowship with him in eternal life the beast isn't thinking about eternity But that is why it is so shocking and grievous to read verse 19 and 20. That man man perishes along with the beast. It's not supposed to be this way. This does not accord with the dignity and the dominion that God gave man in creation. that, That we who have hearts that were made for eternity would die like animals. And how did it get this way? Well, Genesis 2 and 3 tells us, And these verses in Ecclesiastes point us back there. There are several echoes of Genesis in these verses, in Ecclesiastes 3. So Genesis 2 tells us God made man and all the land animals from the dust, from the ground. In the same chapter, God warns man, if you sin, you shall surely die. And we did it anyway. So God told man in Genesis 3.19 what Solomon repeats here in Ecclesiastes 3.20. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so our sin against God is what reduced us to a place of no advantage over the beast, at least in terms of our mortality. And and that's fitting. What made man especially special was the special relationship with God he was given. And, and man's capacity for that. You see? So, so God made man glorious in that way, but man chose rebellion against him. And so now we share a destiny with rodents and donkeys. We're all headed back to the dust from which we were all made, our bodies. And these verses help us to recognize the very sad irony of sin. And the irony comes from comparing the nature of man's original sin with this effect that it had. What was the nature of man's sin? In the garden, it was pride. Man was not content to have God be God over him. And so he reached for the knowledge of good and evil because he wanted to be more like God than God made him. He wanted in many ways then, to, to be his own God, to decide for himself what was good and evil in, instead of living under God's rule and God's word. And here's the tragic irony. That when man in pride declared himself his own God, he actually sentenced himself to the fate of a beast. When, when man tried to make himself more than God made him to be, he made himself so much less than God made him to be. When, when man tried to deify himself, he dehumanized himself. And that, that principle holds true today. Uh, one man wrote about these verses in Ecclesiastes, that Solomon is showing us man on his journey from dust to dust, and confronting us with the fall, with the irony that we die like cattle because we fancied ourselves as gods. You see, we are most fully and beautifully human only when we are relating to God. And and you can head back towards the high intention of God's intention for humanity when you bow low before Him and acknowledge who He is and who you aren't. And God illustrated this, this nature of sin and this judgment Uh, dramatically in the Bible on the judgment he brought on King Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember this? In Daniel chapter 4, that king became very proud over all that he imagined he had gained and and he did not acknowledge God's greatness and rule. And then how did that proud man end up for trying to take God's glory for himself and God's prerogatives upon himself? He ended up eating grass like an ox in a field like a beast. The same principle. Uh, Psalm 49 teaches something similar. And perhaps Psalm 49 was, was going through Solomon's head when he wrote this part of Ecclesiastes. Uh, you, you'll hear the resonance. Psalm 49, 12 says, Man in his pomp, pride, will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And then again in Psalm 49:20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So you should consider the the beast-like mortality of man and learn humility before God. And truly, this principle applies not just in the way that men die, but in the way that men live too. The, The more that you live in... Autonomy in God replacing pride and try to be your own ruler and seek your own gain and glory, the more you will become beastly. If you try to make yourself your own God, you will become a shell of a man. Walk humbly with God or you'll end up living like a beast, like one who doesn't have eternity in his heart who gives no thought to eternal things, who loses his sense of right and wrong, who doesn't understand where he came from or where he's going. And Solomon pulls on that last thread next in verse 21. Look at that now. 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Well, Solomon actually does know. He tells us so we would know in the end of this book, Ecclesiastes twelve seven, says that when a man dies, the dust or the body returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So the spirit of a man will in time rise before God uh, to receive judgment. So, so why is Solomon saying this here in 321? Who knows whether this happens? He's saying no man knows this by his own personal experience, by his own first-hand knowledge, whether or not the spirit of man comes to an end in the dust like his earthly body and like an animal. But if you will live humbly receiving the gift of the knowledge that God has revealed, you can know. He has told us if you do what man did not do in the garden, you can know. If you trust that God's words are true, but, but if man lives by that uh, same autonomy that made him mortal, he, then, then he'll also live in the dark about this. And so he should be haunted then by the question of verse 21. Who knows? And, and the end of the next verse, verse 22, says something Like what we just read in verse 21, another question. Who can bring a man to see what will be after him? So we have in verses 21 and 22, there are two questions that underline how how nearsighted man is. Even though God's put eternity in our hearts, we can only see the present. Who, Who can see by himself where he goes after he dies? Who can see what will happen here after he dies? And look here, in between those two questions, Solomon tells us how we should live since we have these creaturely limitations and how far we can see, how much we can know on our own. How should we live? Well, the better way, of course. Cue the repeat course of Ecclesiastes. He wants us to hear it again. Look at the beginning of verse 22. I saw that there is nothing better then that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Now, this is a shorthand reminder of, of what the book has already told us, as, as up in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3, and again at the end of chapter 2. We've been told there's nothing better for man under the sun for us than to eat and drink And find enjoyment in our toil. To find joy in the present time God is giving us. The present work God is giving us. The daily provisions God is giving us. The present opportunities we have to please God. And do good. And Ecclesiastes 9 adds another. uh, Find joy in the closest relationships God has given you. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 9 says... Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. So, so in light of all that, you feel again the force of the question at the end of verse 22. Who can bring a man to see what will be after him? You can't know the future. And James 4 says, if you're living for tomorrow, that's a kind of boastfulness. It's It's a pride humble yourself as a creature who cannot see and know what God knows, namely the future, and instead of striving after future personal gain, humbly receive with joy what God is giving now. Now, I think it's really very profound for Solomon to commend again this way of living. He's told us before, but now he tells us again right after Reminding us how man became like a beast in the parishes, in the garden. And There's a connection that our primal sin in the Garden of Eden, that pride, that is the thing that would keep us away from living this better way. Think about this. What everyday gifts of God does this book, Ecclesiastes, tell us to receive and enjoy? Food, food. Drink, work, wife, and the opportunity to please God and do good. Okay, what gifts did God give man in the Garden of Eden? Food, drink, work, wife, and the opportunity to please God and do good. Right? God put the man in the Garden of Eden and and said, work it and keep it. That was a blessing. God told the man, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, save one. God made a woman from a rib and brought her to the man. Adam could have used Ecclesiastes. Brother, eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil. Enjoy the people God has given you. Rejoice in your work under the sun. And just aim to please God in the way that you enjoy and use these things. Let that be your lot. But in the garden... Man was not content to enjoy the everyday gifts of God. And in pride he thought, is this it? Isn't there more to be had? I will reach for it. I, I, I will make myself more than this. And so he strove after what God had not given him. And isn't that the hard posture that Solomon is warning us not to have? Now, you might misunderstand even the book of Ecclesiastes if you don't catch this connection with creation. You, you hear the, the book's calls to enjoy your food and your labor and your closest relationships? That's Garden of Eden stuff. Uh, Palmer Robertson said, Ecclesiastes is not a secularistic call to a hedonistic lifestyle. It is a hopeful recall to the basics of human life as originally designed by the Creator. Solomon is helping us in this passage in particular to remember, to, to put this together, to remember how mankind ended up destined for the dust. It was by refusing to gratefully and humbly receive and enjoy these everyday Gifts. Solomon is saying, Don't follow Adam out of the Garden of Eden. Put away a a proud heart that cannot be content with what God allots in the present time. This is how we got into this mess in the first place. This is how the world ended up filled with evil and injustice. This is how everything under the sun became vanity. This is how man ended up degraded to die like beasts. So so see man's beast-like mortality and learn humility and put away the pride that would prevent you from what Ecclesiastes says is the better way to enjoy the everyday gifts and provisions of God and the labor He gives you. it is the sin of Eden stirring in your heart that would make you bristle at the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. right? We read, there's nothing better than for man to eat and drink and rejoice in his works. And some of us think, huh, that seems like a pretty modest portion for me. There better be better than that. There's got to be something better than that for me. Solomon's saying, don't look at these Eden like goods and bristle that there's nothing better. That's what Adam did. Don't set your sights on more and better, set, set your sights on the Edenic earthly gifts God's giving you, your daily bread, your daily work, your closest earthly relationships, and give your heart to enjoying them and enjoying the God who gives them to you. And God is so good to still give man these things. He sent these things with man out of the Garden of Eden. He's still feeding us. He's still giving us drink. He's still giving us relationships. He's still giving us meaningful work. But the proud heart of man still responds in these same ways, and so that's why we need Ecclesiastes to tell us, not once, not twice, but repeatedly, humble yourself, accept your lot from God each day as something to be enjoyed as His gift. See? Look at the cost of the sin of Eden and receive with joy the earthly gifts of Eden. And that's the kind of humility, uh, the the kind of humility that allows, allows joy in present work, that will allow joy even while injustice and unrighteousness prevails around us. Remember, that's the broader context coming down from verse 16. Solomon says in his heart, God will judge. Well, you know, that too comes out of a heart that is humble before God. It's an admission. God is God. I am not. I'm just a creature God made for fellowship with Him. He's creator God. He's the giver of every good gift. And He is judge. And I, and I will entrust myself to Him as all of those things. So the humble heart that finds contentment with present. Work and daily gifts, it's the same humble heart that can entrust judgment of all to God and wait for it. Now, this humble waiting on God for judgment, though, it doesn't mean that we're unfeeling about the wickedness that takes place around us. In the meantime, and likewise, the humble joy in our works we should have, it doesn't mean we should also mourn, When we see the wickedness of man harming others. And that's how chapter 4 opens. And and kind of a counterpoint that Solomon is making. It is the second main point of our passage. Another way that the sight of sin and suffering in the world should purify the hearts of those who fear God. So, the end of chapter 3 taught us to see man's mortality and learn humility... And these first verses of chapter 4 teach us to to see man's brutality and learn sympathy. Look at verse 1. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. So Solomon leaves off re- reflecting on how man dies like a beast, and he, he starts to speak about how fallen man lives, in a sense, like a beast, and how he cruelly oppresses fellow man. A scripture calls oppressive rulers roaring lions and charging bears. Uh, even in modern English, we, we talk like that. When a person treats another person in ways that are heartless, and unsympathetic, and, and abuses them for their own benefit. We call that inhumane. It's inhuman, it's beastly. When when people oppress other people, it, it, it's the same kind of um, God playing pride that redu- that dehumanizes man because they're proudly acting as if those other people exist for their own benefit as if those people are, are a God to whom they belong, to whom they must answer. And so the proud uh, abuse their power, and as they do, they, they actually and, and ironically dehumanize themselves and, and are acting in ways that are not in the image of God but, but are more like in the image of a beast. You know, there's no moral code that governs the animals. It's just might makes right, Gen- generally speaking. I don't mean to you know, throw your pet under the bus here. Might, might makes right. That, that's what prevails in nature. Have you heard the, the phrase, nature is red in tooth and claw? Oppressors live as if they have the right to oppress the oppressed because they have the might to do it. The strength, the authority, the opportunity... Verse 1 said that, in the middle of verse 1, on the side of their oppressors there was power. Now that's why the sinfulness of people in positions of authority are often very pronounced. They come out very strongly. is because they can. It's not necessarily the case that those with power are, are more sinful than those without it. They just have more freedom for the evil in their hearts to come out and and to express it without repercussions. Or so it may seem for now. But God will judge. And how wonderful to know it. And to know that God, on whose side is unlimited power, He is one who uses His authority and strength to bless the people under His care. And how wonderful to know God has said He will use His authority to bring about perfect justice and to call all oppressors to account. Just like we heard in Psalm 9 earlier, God will arise, judge, put them in fear, and let them know they are but men. And you know, throughout Scripture, God expresses very strongly His indignation toward those who abuse power and privilege to oppress others. And God expresses very strongly His care and His concern for the oppressed. I mean, you cannot read the Bible and miss those threads. They're prominent. And so the person who's being renewed in the image of God, and, and so becoming more fully and beautifully human according to God's originally design, that that is the person who's seeking to use whatever power and authority and opportunity they have to do good to any people who are under their charge, under their care, or just around them, and even at their own expense when necessary. And the person who's being so restored as the image of God by the power of the Spirit in Christ they will be marked by a deepening care and concern for those who are so abused and taken advantage of. They'll see the brutality of man and learn sympathy. Hurt with the hurting. That's sympathy, and that's what Solomon is doing here, isn't it, in verse 1? I mean, the pathos in this verse is really strong. These words communicate such depth of feeling. Solomon saw all the oppressions done under the sun and said, behold, that's emphatic. Behold the tears of the oppressed. He's not just bothered by some abstract notion of systemic injustice. He's cut to the heart by real tears that are falling down the face of real people. And then twice, did you notice this? Twice he cries out in one verse, that he can't see any consolation coming because their oppressors have power and they, so they can't do anything about it. The middle of the verse, they had no one to comfort them. The end of the verse, there was no one to comfort them. And don't forget who's saying this. This man deeply distressed over the lack of comfort for the oppressed. This is not a person who's being oppressed right beside them, is it? This pain of heart over the downtrodden is coming from Jerusalem's king, the greatest king there had been, the most powerful man in the ancient world in his generation, Solomon. Uh, The Puritan Matthew Henry said, Solomon had a large soul. And it appeared by this, among other things, that he had a very tender concern For the miserable part of mankind. And was cognizant of the afflictions. Of the afflicted. Out of this. Big hearted compassion. Or or out of this large soul sympathy. Solomon uttered. One of those. Deep laments. That we find in scripture. That make. Uh, The comfortable, very uncomfortable. Look at verse 2. And I thought the dead who were already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Do those verses bother you? These verses should bother you. They they should sober us up to how difficult and deep are the miseries of some people who live under the sun. Uh, Derek Kidner needles us in the way that we need when he wrote about these verses. If the author's gloom strikes us as excessive at this point, we may need to ask whether our more cheerful outlook springs from hope or from complacency. While we as Christians see further ahead than Solomon was here allowing himself to look, that is no reason to spare ourselves the realities of the present. If we can't understand such deep lament... Is it because we turn our eyes away from the tears of the oppressed? Solomon didn't turn his eyes away and he's urging us to look. Behold, verse 1 said, see, behold their tears. Don't hide your face from those tears. God doesn't. Psalm 56, 8, this is wonderful. David said, God puts my tears in his bottle and he records them in his book. God is not missing them. God sees. It's it's part of what God will take into account when he brings final justice. You know, we find several people in the Bible wrestling with such deep suffering that at times they, they say things that they despair of life itself. And I'm not talking about unbelievers. It's righteous people we find in the Bible doing this. Like Job, who was the most righteous man in his generation, at his lowest, he cursed the day of his birth. And Jeremiah, the great prophet, at one point lamented, why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow? And even the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, he said, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, about the affliction that we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. The Bible doesn't encourage us to look away or to ignore, or to minimize the the profound miseries and hardships that can happen to some people, that, that some people find themselves stuck in, in this fallen world. And the Bible does not chastise us for lamenting deep suffering, even with deep sorrow, and even at times looking forward to the rest that God has promised his own people at death. Revelation 14, 15 says, blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they shall rest from their labors. Now, I I feel strange saying this, uh, but but I think I should because of of what is today being being promoted as as a good thing, a very upside down morality, that no one should ever take this lament of uh, verses 2 and 3 as a license for taking the life of the miserable or, or taking the life of the unborn who have not yet seen the evil deeds done under the sun or, or taking one's own life. and be, Because, see, that would actually be a very extreme form of the pride we've been talking about, wouldn't it? The pride that, that takes the prerogatives of God? Life is His to give and take away, the Bible says. And, and so, so murder, including self-murder and, a, and abortion, is never an act of sympathy. The world has that upside down. In, in God's eyes, it's actually an act of oppression. It, it, it is a beast-like evil to take human life. Now, other of course, in contexts like a just war or just capital punishment or as as a necessary protection to protect other human lives. Now, on the other side, it is profoundly humane and godly to see and mourn over others who are deeply suffering, especially the oppressed who have no one to comfort because their oppressors have power, and also then to act as far as one is able to, to help them. Ecclesiastes 3.12 said, I perceive there is nothing better for man than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And, and many scriptures uh, flesh out what that involves. Isaiah 1.17 is one of them I'll give you. Isaiah 117, (coughs) learn to do good, same phrase as Ecclesiastes there, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. There will be times, though, when, when we are powerless to give the justice and comfort that others need. But then we can still pray to the one who has all power. And don't think that that isn't a a very powerful thing to do about it. Do you remember the parable of the persistent widow? Who was given justice because of her persistent asking for it in Luke 18. And she was given justice from an unrighteous judge. Because she kept asking. And the point is, how much more will God who is righteous and just hear and respond to our persevering prayers. Jesus concluded that parable by saying this, Will not God give justice to the elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Godly sympathy is hurting with the hurting to the point that it drives you to try and do something about it, even if the only action that we can take is prayer. And while Jesus lived under the sun, he was often moved with compassion when he faced others' suffering. And that compassion stirred him to act. And at times it stirred him to weep. And it stirred him to pray. And it does even now. Did you know as Jesus intercedes in heaven at the right hand of the Father, Scripture says he is a high priest who intercedes because he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. We have this kind of Savior, and so we who follow him should be this kind of people marked by a godly sympathy, a Christ-like sympathy that prays and weeps and intercedes and tries to intervene. And listen, it's not just a personality thing that you have or don't. It's a godliness thing that you can have grown in you as you are strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And the same for the humility that the first half of this passage calls for. The grace God gives believers in Christ will make them more humble, like Christ. Like Christ. The incarnation, life, death, and burial of Jesus is the Deepest and most beautiful display of humility the world has ever seen. It is the polar opposite of human pride. Man reached up for the prerogatives of God that didn't belong to him. And God the Son was willing to set aside divine prerogatives that did belong to him so he could come and live as a man. And God died as a man who dies like an animal. Like a sheep being led away to the slaughter, the Lord silently let himself be put to death, and his body was laid in the dust. The same fate that happens to the beast happened to the Son of God. And so if seeing the beast-like mortality of man should humble us, how much more should we be humbled by the sight of the Son of God subjecting himself to beast-like mortality? It should humble us greatly and it should also fill us with great hope because he got up from the dust. He rose from the dead three days later and that gives us great hope because it proves that Jesus did not just die as as a foil to our pride but as a substitutionary sacrifice for it And, and as a redemption that paid to ransom us from it. So you can be forgiven. Here's good news of grace for you. You can be forgiven for all of your God-playing pride, for all proud discontent, for, for your cold-hearted lack of concern for those who mourn, for your hard-hearted misuse of other people, or or abuse of power. Because Jesus paid it all and then rose again. Only trust Him. All, all those who do, they're forgiven in Christ. They're they're also set free in Christ and are able in Him to pursue a life of true humility before God and sympathy for others. And those Christ-like virtues humility, and sympathy. They will enable you to live out the paradox of this passage. Did you notice a paradox in it? It commends constant joy and then the deepest sadness. 322, rejoice in all your works. 4, 1 through 3, see the tears of the oppressed and hurt. Live always rejoicing Weep with those who weep. The Apostle Paul told us it's possible. He told us he did. 2 Corinthians six ten. He said, we are always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The Lord Jesus, you know, he was called a man of sorrows. But he also feasted often enough for his enemies to accuse him of being a drunkard and a glutton. Uh, Matthew 11:19. This is the better way: humbly accept with joy all the everyday Eden-like gifts that God gives and mourn with sympathy over all of the suffering that fills the world because of what happened in Eden. And grieve then, though not as the world does, but in hope. Grieve like a Christian. Hope. So look, look at what Solomon looked at. Don't hide. See the injustice. See oppression. See no comfort coming for some under the sun here. But then look to eternity and see how God will bring every deed into judgment and God will wipe away every tear from every face of His own a perfect justice, complete comfort is coming. And it will come when Christ comes a second time. And that, that was King Solomon's hope too. Did you know that? A thousand years before, Christ came the first time. And I say that because of what I find in Psalm 72. It is a psalm of Solomon. It's a psalm of praise that hopes for a king whom God will send, who will have dominion to the ends of the earth. Yeah, that's about Christ. And Solomon says, Give the king, the Christ, your justice, O God, your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. May he crush the oppressor, May all kings fall down before Him and all nations serve Him. He delivers the needy when He calls, the poor and Him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, He redeems their life. Precious is their blood in His sight. That's the King who's coming May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him and all nations call him blessed. Father, we call him blessed. We say, Blessed be the name of your Son, the Christ, the King, whom you will send, whom you will give justice, who will effect complete comfort for all of his own and meet every need of theirs. God, help us to wait patiently and in hope for this comfort and justice that you've promised beyond the sun and i pray that you would help us to live with humility and sympathy so we can please you and bring you glory and and enjoy what you mean for us to enjoy as we wait we pray this in jesus name Amen.